I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we let rip with the might of the empire against the historical falsehood. The podcast where our historians blockade myth and make sure it can never darken our intellectual waters again. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here, as ever, with my good friend, nay, even first mate, Kyle Glover. Ahoy! See? I changed it up for this one. See? See? Good Lord! Nautical! Nautical! Anyway! Yes, well, in case you haven't guessed, dear ages, (laughs) this week we are continuing our dive back into the First World War, but this time we're taking to the high seas. It's a boaty week, dear ages. And here to take us on to this voyage into hostile waters, we are joined by naval historian, podcaster, and History Hack co-presenter, Chris Sams. Chris, welcome to History Rage. Hi, guys. Uh, thanks for having me aboard. <laughs> you're, you're well, sir. Do you want whistling aboard? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you can do it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a crap whistle. I really shouldn't. <laughs> I really shouldn't. Um, so I've run into you via History Hack, both as a listener and a guest, and you came to us recommended by not only Alex Churchill and Andy Locke when we did their Series 3 episode on the First World War, but Charlotte White as well when she came on to rant about it's time to shut up again about the Tudors. Um, But can you tell us a bit about you and kind of how you ended up down the road, or dare I say sea lane, that you're on? Um, Right. I blame I mainly blame Wikipedia for that. Um, <laughs> I, I used to work at the Imperial War Museum. I don't have many fond memories, but I used to have to get up at four o'clock in the morning and get the train in. And um, in, I was reading articles online, and uh, Wikipedia comes up with a Have you did, have you ever thought about reading this? So four uh, thirty in the morning, I'm sat uh, in a train in Strood Tunnel, reading about uh, SMS Emden and what she was up to in the First World War. By the time I get to Gravesend, I've moved on to the East Asian Squadron, and then it sort of ballooned from there. And then I suddenly realised that um, the centenaries were coming up, mm. and I'd just given up local politics because that who needs that in their <laughs> life? And um, so Not even local people need that. Oh, especially not in the party I'm in. Um, <laughs> but uh, so we... 
I thought because I'd done a history degree, I'd specialised in the German Air Force and Second World War. I thought, well, why don't I go try and get back into what I was? I enjoyed writing history essays. Why not write some blog posts about for the centenaries? And then some guy on Facebook once uh, was trying to trawl for authors, and I said, "We, yeah, what about the German Navy in the First World War?" He said, "Why not um, fill out this form, email it to us, and uh, we'll see if we can uh, get it started, get your book." And yeah, it went from there, and that's how German Raiders came around. Okay, and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, um, how I got into history hack is another. That, that's sponsored by Rum, so I won't tell that story. <laughs> oh, you absolutely will. You are committed to it now. <laughs> uh episode seven i have not listened to this episode because i wrote episode seven i believe is the first down the pub and alex and alina were trawling for people to come on and they wanted someone to pitch the greatest ship in history um i just got divorced i just moved out and covid had locked everyone down and um my father sent me two bottles of pusses rum Ooh. and having had several shots of it i was like i messaged alex and went can i come on and pitch the goban I went, I think I drank about three large shots of rum and coke before I started to sort out the Dutch, Dutch courage. Don't really remember much of my pitch. Don't remember anyone else's pitch. And then it got to the end and I just started wobbling on about Dresden and uh, yeah, (laughs) and that's how it started. (laughs) Well, you can't have done anything bad. You're now there as a regular presenter. (laughs) (laughs) There must be something about your drunken drawl that they liked. (laughs) <laughs> yes give, put some rum in the ginger guy and let him go <laughs> okay so promise me you're sober tonight absolutely right then okay so all of this anger is going to come straight from the heart and not from the bottle yeah absolutely definitely brilliant feeling angry <laughs> you wouldn't like me when i'm angry <laughs> right then i'm going to put that to the test then so we know what history rage is about chris Will yeah you please tell our baying lynch mob of history rages what you wish people would just stop believing. For me, my major peeve is that the Battle of Jutland is not that important and it wasn't the victory that everyone thinks it was. Ooh, ooh controversy. <laughs> <laughs> now, to be fair, coming to me, I'm not a First World War historian. I have said this many times, at least once per First World War episode, and I possibly may have slipped it in on a Tudor episode once and twice. But I, I'd i be very much forgiven, I hope, for thinking, do you know what? It's the only battle. Yeah. It's the only one you ever hear about. Yeah, it's, it's really not. It's to say the army guys get it the same, I think, with the Somme. You know, everyone thinks World War One, the Somme, and there's just so much more to it than that. Okay. I should say that um, because it was a world war, you've got conflict going on around the war, around the war, around the world. Um, and it's the same for the Navy. The You know, being seaborne, they are literally everywhere. And so are the Germans. So let's just start with the Navy before we actually get into the kind of battles as well. Then, um, So daft question alert. What's the Navy actually doing? In World War One, where do they fit in to World War One? Well, the big thing is there. The Royal Navy is pretty much Britain's shield. It always has been. Um, I know there's a lot of army types out there going. Dreadnoughts can't go on land, which is what the Kaiser once famously said. But the Royal Navy gives the army its ability to 
fight anywhere around the world. It also protects Britain's trade. We've got we have so much trade coming from other countries from around the world. Uh, prime example that jumps off the top of my head is um, beef from Argentina and South America. Uh, other supplies coming from America. And also, if you're going to have a massive war in Europe, we're going to call on our um, empire to support us. So we've got to get soldiers from New Zealand, uh, Australia, call back the European troops from India and Africa. And they've all got to go by sea, well, which is fine. But what if there's other enemies at sea that can sink troop ships? If you get a, cru- a German cruiser amongst a group of passenger liners, it's not going to take long. So the Royal Navy has to protect those. They also um, yeah. they also protect supply ships going out to other theatres. So, for, so like in Mesopotamia, the they need to be supplied and get um, stocks and gunpowder, gun, uh, bullets and rifles and stuff from India. So they also need escorting. So it's, it's and they also form part of the plan to stop um, a continental power is to form a blockade. Yeah, and it's what it worked in the Napoleonic Wars, and the main plan for the Royal Navy was again we're going to blockade Europe and stop supplies getting into the Central Powers. So it was absolutely vital, and also to protect the um, troops going across the Channel. It's only twenty-two miles yeah. between Dover and Calais. Those twenty-two miles, if you're in a small boat being shot at by Germans, is uh, quite a long way. Mm. So at that point, so it's always been said that like Britain, oh, we have the finest, most powerful navy in the world, and certainly across the nineteenth century, possibly even before, I'd say that was that that was the case. Is it still the case in nineteen fourteen? Very much so. Uh, we had a I forget the date of the bill, but it was in the eighteen eighties, uh, the Naval Defence Act, which uh, meant that the Royal Navy must be twice the size of the next two greatest naval powers so that we will always outnumber them. I believe by 1914 we were doing Germany and France, um, but at one point it was France and Russia. And hmm. if, uh, Let me just – I had to write this down because there's no way I was going to remember this. So uh, in 1914 we had 18 dreadnought battleships, 10 battle cruisers, 170 cruisers of different types, 200 destroyers, and uh, 29 pre-dreadnought battleships. So it's – pretty large um a good chunk of that is in home waters but they're also scattered around the empire as well we've got um battleships mothballed in hong kong india cruiser squadrons off the good hope off um south africa on the cape of good hope uh and off the azores and uh the americas but the main battleships are um in british waters so they're pretty it's pretty quite it's pretty formidable okay Right then, that gives us an episode background to what the Navy are and where they're doing. Now, if we look at something like the Second World War, you see you see a lot of the Navy, you mentioned they're doing all this escort stuff, and we see that in the Second World War as well with things like the Atlantic convoys, the Arctic convoys, and so forth. Uh, but you do also see navies across the world going in on offensive actions. Um, I'll take the American Navy and the Battle of Midway being a classic example of, uh, of that, where you're going out to take out the other naval assets you know is the is the navy performing that role as well uh, yeah they've um the, the main thing is to that they're concerned about what the german fleet are going to be doing they don't want they they don't want to commit themselves to anything um too far from home waters in case the german fleet puts to sea so even though there are fleet um other countries and other fleets uh around the world they can't deal with those unless 
Um, like, for example, Von Spey had a squadron of cruisers in China and there was a, a call for more ships, but London is very hesitant to send them out. They will carry out offensive options uh, operations in European waters where they can, and they tend to use the, the old pre-Dreadnought battleships because uh, Churchill would later refer to them in 1915 as doomed to the scrap heap anyway. So it doesn't matter if we lose them. That's some confidence. Well, yeah, my... I'm going to get onto Churchill in a minute, but um, <laughs> one of the things that bothers me is that, yeah, the ships are te- technically obsolete. It's still a battleship and it's still got 700 men on it. Yeah. And if it gets lost, that's 700 men. <laughs> but they do tend to use, they um, they do have like patrols of them uh, based in uh, Sheppey. I don't know why I'm pointing, you can't see. <laughs> and they would go out and uh, shell northern French ports. And uh, try. Mm-hmm. There, there was a plan to support an army thrust up the north coast of France by basically shoving a load of pre-dreadnoughts off the coast as floating artillery. So to flip from the Royal Navy to the German Navy, what are they doing in the First World War? And how much of a threat are they to the Royal Navy and to um, Allied... And Scarborough. Allied shipping, Allied... And Scarborough, yes. (laughs) And Scarborough. Remember Scarborough! (laughs) On a brief side, I was looking at a map of Medway the other day and there is a small village just south of Gillingham called Scarborough. And I'm trying to formulate a joke about the Germans shelling it. But... um, I'm from Yorkshire, so we, you know, the Germans shelled Scarborough place i go i went on holiday you careful sunshine <laughs> um I'm, I'm rather biased because i think the german navy was amazing um i'm not gonna put the hat on um but <laughs> so yes he's put the hat um, on ladies and gentlemen there you go the hat is on but um yeah the german navy is in itself it's every i mean everyone there's that quote from downfall about a german wouldn't know a stretch of water if it's bigger than a bloody lake but the german navy is actually quite sizable and again i had to write these stats down because there's no way i was going to remember it so in 1914 they've actually got 15 dreadnoughts uh, four battle cruisers 58 cruisers of various types 149 destroyers and 23 pre-dreadnought class battleships they are a threat to the English because so to the British Navy because they could attack anywhere at any time. Scarborough is a case in point. They just rolled up one morning, fired off quite a few rounds into Scarborough, Hartlepool and Yarmouth, turned around and left. Royal Navy was nowhere to be seen. And it's quite an embarrassment. I mean, the, the, the British press would uh, quickly span it to go, remember, remember Scarborough and look what the German, the beastly German has done. But at the same time, questions are being asked is where the bloody hell was our Navy? The other thing that the German Navy have got, I mean, we've got them as well and I will come on to them later, but Germans have submarines that, I mean, before the first world war, submarines are a bit of a joke. And one of those things, because the majority of the Admiralty on both sides are traditional. We've got warships. We should have warships. What's this silly little boat that goes underwater? Well, that silly little boat, U-9, sank three British cruisers in 40 minutes. Um, Abaco, Cressy and Hogue all lost in 40-odd minutes. Uh, New Year's Day, uh, 1915, HMS Formidable is sunk by U-24 with like 700 men going into the – getting killed. The And U-21, it was like one ship, the first one that was sunk by a war, uh, Otto Hersing just disappeared there, it was like a day later they found some wreckage and a, cut a handful of survivors because this the, this U-boat had just taken it out and no one knew anything about it. 
Uh, Hersing then goes on in, off to Gallipoli and sinks two battleships in four days. U-boats are a massive problem. Yeah. So um, beyond that, the German battle cruisers are really well built. Uh, they take a lot of damage. Uh, there's a comparison of um, uh, shell damage to British armor, uh, battle cruisers and how much they took compared to the German cruisers at Jutland. And the Germans took a lot of damage, but were still floating, whereas the British ones blew up. Um, but the German fleet have also got the added thing of that they're not just in Baltic waters, they're scattered around the world. And that bit, that is a massive problem because they can attack anywhere. I mean, you've got two cruisers in the Caribbean, uh, a whole squadron of them in China, uh, one in Africa, and they've got um, liners that they're preparing to arm up with guns and send out as uh, commerce raiders. Mm-hmm. And these can obviously, you see a liner, you don't know who it is until it's suddenly the war flag's gone up and they're shooting at you. So the German Navy are not the, you know, it's not a paper force. They are really quite strong. Um, Kaiser Wilhelm had been really impressed by the Royal Navy, really didn't like King Edward and wanted to show him, said, right, fine, we're going to build our own damn Navy. And uh, they'd really gone to town on it. Okay, so you mentioned that they're all around the world. You mentioned you've got them in the Caribbean, you've got them around China. Now, again, I'm going to ask a moronic question here, but but who and what are they going to be attacking? That's the thing. The, the British are, aren't really sure. I mean, the main thing is that they will, the solitary cruisers like uh, Dresden and Karlsruhe, who are in the Caribbean, will probably attack trade. They're fairly certain that they'll attack trade. They'll mm-hmm. take guns off their ships and put them on uh, armed civilian ships that they've taken to form raiders, thus multiplying the problem. Um, so they're sort of targeting that route across the Atlantic or that route that's coming up from South America. That's because we the army can't fight without bully beef. Well, exactly, yeah. And they, you have some really major trade spines. And the, the thing is, the Germans know where the trade spines are. So um, in the case of Karlsruhe, she just... Um, to, also to save coal, coal, she just turns her engines off and just floats up and down the trade spines, taking ships out. They also, there's also lots of secluded bays and harbors and neutral ports that they can use. Um, so they can dig it. Ships like Karlsruhe can just dig in like a tick and you, you may never find them. It took them ages to try and find Karlsruhe. Um, and they, in fact, they never did find her because she, she blew up in November 1914, but they were still looking for her five months later because they were still convinced that she was on off the coast. There's SMS Leipzig is off the coast of Mexico, and they were for, um, the Canadians thought that she was going to launch an invasion on um, Cana- on um, the naval base in Esquimalt. Von Space Squadron, they've got absolutely no idea what he's going to do because he's got two armoured cruisers, which are really quite powerful, mm-hmm. and the entire Indian and Pacific Oceans in which to play with. So they've got he could attack troop convoys because the Australians are going to be sending troops. Yep. He could be attacking any kind of merchant ships. He might again take all his weapons off the ships and just arm a whole fleet of merchant ships to go and cause ha- havoc. They just have absolutely no idea what they're going to do. So they could be they they're not necessarily the threat to the North Sea that everybody might think of. They are a threat to the whole empire. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And they've got this uh, annoying radio system, these massive wireless sets scattered around the world. So Berlin can talk to, um, to, to its empire, which then forms, affects British strategy because they find themselves having to invade Togoland, which is a 
really small colony. I think it only took them a couple of weeks to take it over, but they had to organize an arm, armed invasion because there's a great big wireless set in there that was part of the transmission system because it went to Togo, then onto a neutral country, then to Brazil, over to the other side of South America, and then over island hopped all the way to China. So the only way they could cut Berlin out was to take out Togoland. Wow. Uh, that that would have been hopefully sitting out the war were it not for a, a large wireless set involved. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the governor of Togoland, uh, had, uh, there, there had been a discussion before the war about colonies not necessarily being involved. It's like, we'll just leave them be. And the, the governor tried to uh, induce that into the British and the uh, Anglo-French invasion forces told him to get knotted, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but there, I'll just suddenly remember there was another threat to, to Britain, and this actually did cause a massive problem. The SS city of Winchester was stopped and sunk by the German cruiser Königsberg in August 1914 in um, the Red Sea. By itself, doesn't sound like anything, except that um, with the sinking of the city of Winchester, the Admiralty shut down the Red Sea. It's like no ships are allowed in the Red Sea until we've made sure that Königsberg's not there. But Winchester was carrying the first of the tea harvest from India. Ooh. There was tea shortages in London. Nothing can affect the British psyche other than tea shortage. There will be no tea until we reopen the Red Sea. Oh, you may as well just sue for terms right there. Absolutely. I think that's part of the plan. (laughs) So that's the German Navy. What other navies are in play and how? And what are our kind of major battles apart from Jutland? Well... There is another navy that gets massively overlooked, um, and that is the Austro-Hungarian navy. Again, when you say to people the Austrians have a navy, they go, "Really? Have they got any sea?" But yeah, they did. They did indeed have have quite a, a fair-sized navy. They had four mm. dreadnoughts, which doesn't sound like a lot, but they were brand new. They had a few uh, pre-dreadnought uh, battleships, a few really good light cruisers, and they were they were a threat because again, the the, the French had a um, had to bring their troops over from Algeria to uh, southern France. And so there was a big big concern that the Austrians would sally forth and attack them. Also that the Austrians would then also just sally forth into the Mediterranean and cause merry havoc. Um, they also had U-boats of their own. Uh, Von Trapp of uh, the Sound of Music fame um, was a U-boat captain, mm-hmm. very famously sank a um, uh, French armoured cruiser. He stalked it for three days out in the Mediterranean, caused a lot of problems for the French. Um, And there was always a big question mark of what the Austro-Hungarians were going to do. So we left most of the Mediterranean to the French, um, although we did have a presence there at the beginning of the war. Um, The main thing was the French Navy held the Mediterranean. And so they they set up a a barrage of uh, sort of fishing trawlers across Otranto to Greece, um, to keep an eye out for um, Austrian submarines and warships. And on the 14th, the night of the 14th to the 15th of May, you have what's called the uh, Battle of Jutland of the Adriatic, where a group of uh, Austro-Hungarian cruisers attacked the uh, trawlers, sank quite a few of them, turned around and ran, with the uh, then Italian fleet and Royal Navy and French Navy chasing them. But they, they managed to get away, which is quite embarrassing to the Allies. Uh, you also have the Turkish Navy, which is actually the German Navy in disguise. Um, I'm sure there'll be a few people who get upset about that, but the main two <laughs> ships. <laughs> well, they were. I mean, they had a couple of pre-dreadnoughts, which were Germans, 
they had um, the main two ships became the Yavuz, was the Yavuz Salim the second, and which was a battle cruiser, formerly called SMS Goban, uh, which had fled there in the first few days of the war, embarrassing the British quite a bit. Uh, they get the German state then sold the sold her to the Ottomans. And all the Germans aboard took their hats off and replaced them with fezes and became members of the Ottoman navy, uh, along with the light cruiser Brez, um, Breslau or Medelli. They then, right. well, while the Ottomans are started, the Germans are trying to force the Ottomans to join um, join the Central Powers. And so Ab- Vice Admiral Souchon, of the now head of the Ottoman navy, but still a German officer, admiral, took his ships out on exercises and shelled Odessa which then caused the Russians to declare war on Turkey, which then made France and England declare war on Turkey. And so Germany said, well, you're in the war now, lads. Might as well join us. Um, so they're involved. Um, yeah. You also get the Canadian Navy, the Australian Navy, and then the Japanese Navy have quite a role as well. They are often overlooked. Mm. They um, blockaded the che- German port of Tsingtao, Um and then took over most of those islands in the Second World War that they say that the, that the Japanese were occupying. They actually took from the Germans in 1914. I say took they because there weren't any Germans on them, but they just sort of rolled up and said, "You belong to us now." And, and the yeah. sort of islanders went, "Oh, all right." <laughs> but that Hello, must- flag ships yeah. done. Did do you have a flag? We have a flag. flag. Um, there we go. They, they did famously lose the uh, cruiser. And my pronunciation is going to really suck at this. The Takahiko, um, which Apologies was to our listeners in Japan. Sorry, <laughs> but she was sunk by the uh, German torpedo ship S ninety, um, which, whilst they were blockading um, Singtao, this uh, torpedo boat snuck out and put two torpedoes into this uh, Japanese cruiser, and then promptly sailed away. Um, they also uh, at Singtao they also had the Austro-Hungarian cruiser um, Victoria Louis. No. Not Victoria Louise. That's the princess I want to marry. The um, I forget her name. Um, but they had their own um, their own cruiser out in, in Singtao. So the Austrians were actually fighting in China too. But other battles that are really good. The 18th of March 1915, the Royal, the Anglo-French navies are going to force the Dardanelles, sail up into the Sea of Marmora, and then put Constantinople under Allied guns and force them to surrender. So they try to force the Narrows, and during the course of the day, they lose three battleships to gunfire and possibly mines. And it's possibly the most decisive naval battle in history, in the First World War because um, it then means that the Gallipoli campaign is an absolute necessity. The Navy go, well, we're not trying that again. And um, so it is actually really vital. Uh, other than that, my two favourites, Battle of Coronel, which is uh, 1st of November 1914, where we lose uh, the um, our first admiral in combat, which is uh, Admiral Craddock and his squadron, who run into von Spey's squadron, and in the course of the day, the two his two armored cruisers are sunk, uh, for, and the Germans suffered negligible damage. And then, of course, the uh, the Battle of the Falklands, with uh, where von Spey's squadron turn up several about a month and a bit later, and uh, run straight into Vice Admiral Sturdy's battle cruisers and get taken apart quite decisively. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, now, Carl's question that's going to be coming up is going to sort of dig dig into the sort of importance of Jutland. But before we get into the graphics of, of how important or not important Jutland might be. We've got a lot of World War II types out there. We've got a lot of medieval types. We we've got a lot of World War One on the land types and things like that. So, first of all, talk us through what what is Jutland? When is it? Why is it? And what happens? I'm thinking about if you think about it as like a Cold War, the everyone has everyone's got their nuclear arsenals, and you're just waiting for someone to use it. And the first in the Second World War is everyone's got their bomber fleets and everyone's waiting to use it. Who's going to be the first one? It's on the first day of the war, we're going to there's going to be a bombing. Hmm. In the First World War is first day of the war. The German fleet's going to put out and we're going to have a big humdinger of a battle. But it doesn't come. And it's just it's a matter. Of, and it's it's been building for even before the war. There's always been that. Yeah, we'd like to we'd like to take a, have a go at the German fleet. It's like, yeah, we, we'd like to have a go at the English. And it's it's slowly been building and building and it's it's sort of been a matter of time before this was going to happen well the germans aren't morons they know that they're outnumbered by the ally by the british and they don't want a fleet a full fleet engagement because they know they can't replace the ships if they get heavily damaged or destroyed they know they they're outnumbered and outgunned so they what they start doing is trying to nibble away at the british um, majority so you've had instances like dogger bank where Hipper has gone out with his battle cruisers to try and find British ships, tempt them out, destroy them, and then withdraw. Mm-hmm. Jutland is now um, several ju- after Dogger Bank, where they lost the armored cruiser Blucher. There was a the Kaiser was like, "No, my ships are too expensive. We can't stop sending them to sea." But by 1916, Admiral Shear is now in command of the navy of the fleet, and he's been saying, "Come on, let's go and have another go at them." And you get the lowest off raid where they send out the battle cruisers. And they have their heavy, they take their big capital ships, the dreadnoughts, out. And the battle cruisers and armor cruisers go out, attack the British, then try to draw them back onto the heavy units where they're going to get destroyed. So battle, British battle cruisers, armor cruisers, light cruisers, we'll go out, we'll blow enough stuff up, then we'll withdraw. They'll chase after us straight onto the big guns and get destroyed. Jutland is a massive case of that. They get the entire big fleet out and they're like, right, we're going to draw off real significant numbers of these of the British, draw them this way, bring them onto our big ships, destroy them, and then we'll withdraw. But we are not to engage the heavy fleet. 
because if we do, we'll, we'll lose, and they know that. So it's a it's an attempt to to get to draw the British out. Unfortunately, the British are listening to all their radio signals and know exactly that the fleet's gone to <laughs> gone to sea. And this gives them then the opportunity to go right now that they're there. Let's go to take everything we've got and give them a right royal beat. Absolutely, because it, it takes time to get. And this was always the German gamble because they know it's it takes time to get heavy ships ready to. You have to make sure they're fully armed, make sure they're fully cold. They've got to, they've got to know where they're going. So if you're doing a lightning raid on Lower Staft or Scarborough or Sheppey or whatever, it's only the ships that are going to be local, light cruisers, armoured cruisers, maybe for lucky battle cruisers if they're in the area. So you know it's only going to be small snippets. So that that's their plan is they're, they're trying to weaken the British blockade and majority by taking out numbers of ships, significant numbers of ships, but without getting in danger. So what happens? Well, it didn't work. <laughs> well i mean it did i mean jutland because the british knew they were coming they were ready for them and it started really innocuously uh a danish ship got stopped by some german ships um they were searching it then they saw smoke on the horizon it was the british battle cruisers so the germans withdrew onto their battle cruisers then bt attacked them saw the german fleet where bugger this, turned around and started leaving. The German battle cruisers chase him. Then they realise that they're coming up on the British fleet. Go, oh crap! And then they start to turn around. And then the German fleet turn up. They see Jellico has managed to get his ships all in the right spot. We call it the naval nerds call it crossing the T um, because you all your guns fire better on a broadside. You can get the broadside. You can bring more guns to bear. So if you put your, I'm, I'm gesturing, but no one can see. Uh, if you put all your ships in a line, and as the German ships come up like nose to side, they can only fire for, fire forward with two gu- like two to four guns, whereas the whole of a dreadnought's battery will be facing you. So yeah. Jellicoe's got his ships right where they needed to be, and they give uh, Sheer a broadside, and then Sheer carries out. It's the most practiced. Uh, German manoeuvre and what really grinds my gears is that everyone says oh the German fleet turned and ran away yes they're supposed to turn and run away because <laughs> that's the plan. plan so he they execute this beautiful u-turn of the fleet they all just u-turn and pull back and then there's a bit of confusion then some smoke and then the Germans come round for another go I think they were hoping that the the British would have come off their line Again, Jellicoe, who's a genius, has managed to get his whole squadron, his whole fleet exactly where they're supposed to. And the Germans U-turn again and withdraw. But they have to use their battle cruiser. They send their battle cruisers in to um, cover the withdrawal. And the battle cruisers suffered quite a bit. Uh, in the night time, sailors don't like fighting at night in the First World War because you can't see. You get uh, in the Second World War, you get like Cape Matapan, where um, it doesn't matter because you've got radar and you can spot the Italian ships. First World War, you don't have that, and so both both fleets are trying to find each other in the dark. And Jellicoe's hope is that he can get his forces in front of Shears, so that when the sun comes up between Germany and uh, the German fleet is the Royal Navy, and then they'd be screwed. But it doesn't work out like that, and the Germans manage to get away. Although you do get, just to prove the, the night fighting, uh, there's uh, one German ship see is at the back of its line, and it sees uh, a light of another vessel coming up behind it. And they're not entirely certain of it, so they swing the um, searchlights onto it, and it's HMS Black Prince, who thought that it was joining a line of British ships. And, uh, yeah, Black Prince went down with all, all hands. 
the German German line just decimated her. And you also get destroyers appearing out of the darkness and putting torpedoes into things. Uh, the only German battleship to be lost, a uh, pre-dreadnought. I always get it muddled up. Posen or Pilau, I always get them wrong. Um, she's a Deutschland class. She took a torpedo and it struck a magazine and she blew up and went down with all hands. But again, just a destroyer just shot out of the darkness, hit her and ran. So night fighting is not what they want. So now that we know what Jutland is, let's get let's get into the big question of this episode. Brace for impact. And I, I, now I'm bracing myself for this one. How important is Jutland? It, it isn't really. Not really. No, in my opinion, um, mainly because nobody wins it. Now I know technically. The Germans won Jutland. That's going to upset a lot of people. That sort of talk is going to get you banned from history hack, you know. I know. I know. I'm not going to be a naval historian anymore. Um... Uh, banned. Thrown out of the guild. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the British lose well, more ships than the Germans do. So mm. you, you've got a technical victory there, haven't you? But then, then the Germans stay where they are and don't really come out again. So you've got a technical victory there. That's, yeah. that's the thing, though. That's the thing, because the... Oh, I, I say the Germans win the battle, but yes. there is a massive but. Yes. The their aims for the battle going in was to do significant damage to the Royal Navy, and they they do. They succeed in sinking uh, three battle cruisers, quite a few a uh, few light cruisers. They take out um, Arbonaut's first cruiser squadron, sink a few destroyers. They do sink more ships than they lose, but. <laughs> The British blockade stays in place. There's, the, there's that quote that that journalist comes out with, and everyone trots it out every bloody time. Oh, the uh, jailer assaulted the jailer. The prisoner assaulted the jailer, but he's still in jail. That's not actually true. The German Navy gets back. They have suffered. I mean, if 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 people want to Google the picture, uh, Google Seidlitz post Jutland, and her bow is literally a meter off the water as she's going in. She's sinking there was i don't know how she managed to get back uh, they lose the battle um another battle cruiser they had to, to torpedo themselves the german fleet is knocked out for several months but they come back out to sea they're out um i think it's in august july um july or august they're sending out another battle cruiser thing and it doesn't really get talked about they then go to they then help launch Operation Albion in uh, the Baltic, where they uh, support the German army landings on the Moon Sound and taking Russian islands. They're not a spent force. They're still very active, and they still tie down a large amount of the Royal Navy in case they come out again. It's not this great victory of, oh, yeah, we hammered the Germans. They're not coming out again. And, yeah, they ran away. No, they bloody did. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They came out. They sank, your, sank a load of ships, turned around and got the hell out. It could have gone a lot better for them. And I, they really weren't expecting to see Jellicoe there. But the British, BT screwed it up for everyone. I'm going to say that. BT screwed it up for everyone. He just, <laughs> BT bothers me more than Jutland. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah. So come on, let's, right, let's roll with that then. then you know, get, get on with it. BT screws Jutland up both barrels. Because he just... He, he doesn't, he doesn't be, there's two types of sailor. You get the quiet, cautious ones like Jellicoe, who's loved by his men. He's in it for the long game. And then you get the hoorah Henry's like Horatio Nelson and, Je- and yep. B- Kate Jameson's going to kill me. And, um, <laughs> and BT, who are all about, let's get in amongst them. Let's cause some trouble. 
And he's, done, he's, he's got prior form in this that he doesn't send accurate signals. He doesn't pe- tell people really what he's doing. And he did it at Dogger Bank, and he does it again at Jutland. He doesn't pass on the information properly to Jellicoe. So Jellicoe basically had to guess where to put his squadron. And it was only because um, Beatty kept running off to chase the Germans. that he, And it's like, just... And then after the battle, Beatty did a Churchill and, you know, history will be kind to me because I will write it. And Beatty basically got Jellicoe blamed for the losses that they had and that if he'd been more aggressive, they could have sunk the German fleet, got himself bumped up to uh, Admiral of the Fleet and in charge of the whole Grand Fleet. And it's just, he was a vainglorious, self-important little toad and he should wear his hat bloody straight. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing that really gets you, isn't it? Well, you know, it, wear it like that, not like that. I mean, what? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> While we're on the subject of reputations and things like that, then, why does the Navy not suffer the same lions led by donkeys reputation that, that we see in the Army? They do. But the admirals who are Egypts e- tend to go down with their ships. That's or, like if it's a good disaster at the subsequent inquiry, you're the sole survivor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, for example, um, uh, BT BT rewrote what happened, and it took, that, that went on for years, and it's only sort of now coming out. Um, like Nick Jellico, Admiral Jellico's grandson, has written a very good book about uh, his Jutland experiences, and you know, BT's coming under the under the uh, lens a bit more. But other admirals uh, like Arbonaut, uh, who died at Jutland, had the good grace to go down on his flagship. He, uh, they spotted a German light cruiser that was in trouble, and he charged towards it with his four armoured cruisers right across the front of the German battle cruisers, who hesitated for a minute, go, what the hell? And then they just gave them both barrels, and his flagship went down first. One of the other ships was so heavily damaged it sank later. One of the other ones was the, the Black Prince that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm again heavily damaged it's just an absolute moronity of let's just charge straight across others get quietly moved along the idiot who was in charge of um, admiral milne who was in charge of the mediterranean squadron that was meant to capture goban and breslau before they got to um was so arrogant and so slow and wasn't really knew what he was doing he quietly got retired the same with the the guy who was in charge of the live bait squadron, Abaca Hogan Cressy. He got uh, reassigned to something else. And even the Admiral who'd been um, leading the, for- when Formidable sank on New Year's Day, there'd been a line of four battleships. There was a full investigation into his um, behaviour. They tried to get him for negligence. And then they pointed out it was like two o'clock in the morning and it was dark. How were they meant to know there was a U-boat there? And so he was, again, he was moved on to something else. So you do get you do get some real howlers as well, but um, the biggest one being Winston Churchill, and he got away with it because he wrote the history book. <laughs> him and BT was, working he, on a co-authoring deal. He, he was so detrimental. At one point, ships had to contact London. He, he saw it that he had this giant chess set and that he alone could move all the pieces and he knew where everyone was and what they were doing, and ships had to contact him to... Um, ask if they could give an extra rum ration, which should be down to the captain, yeah. you know. And he was, like, overruling his admiral. Uh, he's, he was the one that sent Kit Craddock's squadron around the Cape, saying, oh, don't worry, we'll send you with the pre-dreadnought um, Canopus, and that'll fight. That'll be able to fight off the Germans. And Kit Craddock, who was the admiral on the spot, who knew what the ships could do, said, 
that's not enough. He's like, no, 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 you'll be fine. Go round. So Kit Craddock went round and he got killed. With two of his, to both um, his armor cruisers down, went down with all hands. Churchill walks away from it. That's not my fault. How we, he didn't follow my orders. And the moral of this is never listen to politicians. Exactly. <laughs> so we see throughout the First World War, the Army and the Flying Corps uh, dramatically develop and make improvements and evolve as time goes on, as the conflict evolves. How does the Navy change and adapt to the situations? They are kind of slow in a way. Like I said, you've got a lot of people who are traditionalists and they, they've got their big gun battleships and it's like, well, we're, this is how the war should be fought. But at the same time, you've got quite a few innovations as well. The submarine uh, becomes a major player. I mean, I know I've, I've spoken about the U-boats, but the mm. British were doing exactly the same thing. We had U-boat, uh, our own submarines uh, hanging around uh, Helgeland Bight. Uh, sinking, we sank a couple of German ships there, and then we sent three of them into the Baltic, and it ju- they just became an absolute headache for the German fleet. The the Baltic, which is often referred to as like a German lake, the Kaiser refused to let his ships go out onto the Baltic because it just wasn't safe. There was a, a cruiser squadron going along. Uh, I think it was the battle cruiser Molka took a torpedo to the rudder, and they were like, "Oh my god, we didn't even know there was a submarine in the area," and it just became so dangerous for them. You also have air cooperation. The Royal Navy Air Squadron, Air Service, sorry, build up a massive defence. They're in charge of Britain's uh, defence against zeppelins and air attack, as well as reconnaissance. They then go on to form patrols for convoys. They also use air air gun coordination um, in the Battle of the Refugi Delta. The Königsberg basically hides in a in a um, river estuary, and they think they're fairly safe until the British find out where they are. They get blockaded in, and they're using, well, I think it's one of the first cases of using spotter airplanes to locate and also bomb this, this light cruiser. And then the, they bring up um, the HMS Goliath, a battleship, and then later monitors Seven and Mersey to shell the ship round because they can't get up, up the river to get at her. So they're using the aircraft to spot her location and call down the shell fire to the gunners so that they can get a more accurate fix on it. Um, they also develop depth charges for fighting the U-boats. So they they don't they don't sit still, hmm. despite the, the very conservative nature of where well, we've got our dreadnoughts. Yeah, yeah, but what if we don't? You, you also get Q-ships as well, which are um, Germans hated those. They're just uh, they look like civilian merchant ships until the U-boat comes up near them, and then they uh, they, they start firing at them. And the Germans tried to go, say that they were a war crime because they're uh, they're meant to they look they're, they're flying the civilian flag, so. But that that got soon thrown out. <laughs> yeah, if I'm, if I'm right, there isn't. Is there anything like a Geneva Convention in the First World War? You you no no, but you do have rules. Uh, the the cruise there were the cruise what called the cruiser war rules, which were um, mainly before submarines, von Space Squadron like Emden and Dresden etc. You were meant to fly your nation's flag, go towards them, give them a warning, then you could fire a warning shot. And only then, if they, the civilian ship refused, you could fire a disabling shot at them. But it was all very gentlemanly, and then you took the crews off. With the U-boats, they started to do the same. Uh, U-boat would come up and say, you must surrender, we're going to inspect your ship, make sure, see if you're carrying any contraband, and then we're going to sink you if you have. But Allied ships started ramming U-boats, so the Germans were like, well, bugger that. <laughs> bugger <Yeah>. that. <laughs> 
we'll uh, we'll just torpedo you and just save time, and that's how it led to unrestricted U-boat warfare, which then caught you get like the um, the Sussex incident, and then the Lusitania and some other ships going down, which then drags America in and other nations, and it's but it all came about through people going uh, ships captains going well that's fine we'll just ram them was it fry it captain fry it i forget his name i think it was fry it he he rams two u-boats and eventually was captured and the germans shot him for um espionage and war crimes for ramming his majesty's ships um i just think you mentioned earlier that we don't have radar do they have sonar no not at this point no that comes much later how the hell do you spot a submarine well, without these things that's the thing they see them everywhere i mean there's quite a common thing about uh not stopping to pick up survivors in the water because they think there's a u-boat around and people at um at dogger bank i remember reading um listening to one of the audio things at the imperial war museum in the sound archives and they had officers specifically on the on the wing bridges with binoculars scanning the sea looking for periscopes so it just becomes paranoia anything that they think is a u-boat they'll fire at I mean, you, when the U-9 sank Abaca, Cressy and Hogue, I think, I think it was Hogue went, saw a periscope and went shooting off after it, shooting it. But it was that the U-9 was in the other direction. They don't know what they were shooting at, but they were certain there was definitely a periscope. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for that, Chris, because I have to say I've never really considered the war at sea because, well, you just get bombarded with O trenches and O poetry oh, and O glorious flyboys. Uh, so, yeah, thank, thank you very much for bringing that to the surface, as it were. <laughs> no problem. If you'd like to know more, then listen out for Chris on History Hack every week. We will have a link to History Hack in the show notes as well. And if you've not experienced them so far, then you you absolutely should. Of course, once you've finished listening to us, we are the priority here. And, of course, you can follow Chris on Twitter at JerryGerard14. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So once again, Chris, from both of us, thank you very much for coming on and bringing the Navy rage. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And if you're enjoying History Rage, then please consider joining the Angry Mob on Patreon as this really helps us meet the cost. Your £5 per month will get you entry into our regular prize book draws, invite to put questions to future guests, early episodes, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.